everyone and welcome to the Politics and Pedagogy podcast. This podcast looks at everything teaching and learning around politics and global challenges, where we talk to a range of practitioners, educators and researchers in the field. So at the moment you're with co-hosts, I'm Dr Louise Pears and I co-host with Dr Madeleine Labordon and we're both also the co-directors of the Centre for Teaching, Innovation and Scholarship. This podcast is produced by Harrison Swinhoe and Maureen Guggen. And in the first three episodes are sponsored by the Decolonizing Development Cost Action Working Group. So thank you very much to them. In the first three episodes, we're going to be looking at decolonial approaches to pedagogy of global challenges and politics. And we have some really exciting guests coming up. For this first episode, we were joined by Dr. Sayan Day and Dr. Lata Narayanaswamy. Sayan was calling in from South Africa. He's at the University of Fitz and Latta is also based at Leeds University in the Polis department with us. So without any further ado, let's dive in. So today we welcome Dr. Shayun Day, who grew up in Calcutta, West Bengal, and is currently working as a postdoctoral fellow at Fitz Centre for Diversity Studies at Fitz University. He is also a faculty fellow at the Harriet Tubman Institute at York University, Canada, and his latest published monograph is Green Academia Towards Eco-Friendly Education Systems, published by Rutledge in 2022. His areas of research interest are post-colonial studies, decolonial studies, critical race studies, feud humanities, and critical diversity literacy. Thanks. And then we're also joined today by Dr. Lata Naraswamy, who's Associate Professor in the Politics of Global Development at the School of Politics and International Studies here at Leeds. Since 2001, Dr. Naraswamy has worked as a research practitioner, consultant and now academic, working at the nexus between development theory and practice. Her research critically reflects on the gendered, intersectional and post-decolonial dynamics of development knowledge and its perceived contribution to addressing global development challenges. She's currently involved in applied interdisciplinary research related to gender, feminism and intersectionality as they relate to climate change, water security and decolonising development. She's the current vice chair of the Cost Action Work Group Decolonising Development. So let's get into our questions. Madeline, do you want to kick off with the first question? Thank you very much for both being here. So our first question we wanted to start with, and maybe Shayun, we could start with your thoughts on this, is what does decoloniality mean to you? First of all, thank you so much, Louis and Madeline, for creating this fantastic space of interaction and conversations and having me and Lata, both of us, into this space. I think it's a, it's a very important way to start with the fundamental question of what is decoloniality. And this question might appear to be very repetitive because we keep on asking this question at various points of a time, but also... It is very important to address this question, and according to me, decoloniality is a reference to every forms of resistances that interrogate and question every aspect of colonial thinking and doing that exists around us. It can be in the physical way, it can be in the ideological way, it can be in the cultural way, and various other possible ways. It can be within academic spaces, it can be within households, it can be right into the streets, in the coffee shops, into the restaurants, into the TV shows, and whatever other possible examples exist around us. Perfect, Lata, if you want to take that question up. Sure. Well, first, let me just echo Shayun. First, it's lovely to be able to share space with you again, Shayun. That's always nice. And thank you, Louise and Madeline, for facilitating that. It's always nice to take the time to reflect on the questions that you've raised. And as Shayun said, I really appreciate you making the space to do that. I would also echo what Shayun has said in the sense that it feels very much like decoloniality is a buzzword but I would caution against the sort of complacency. And so I think the value of of you creating that space in a way highlights the need to keep talking about these issues, right? So when something becomes a buzzword, we sort of imagine that maybe that means it's been dealt with or it's in good hands and we can move on and do something else. 
And like Shayun has said, you know, this is very much tied up with process. It's a part of activism and it never stops. So the value of having that conversation and continuing that conversation in as many spaces as we are able to is never not valuable. So again, very appreciative of you making the time for this dialogue. So what does decoloniality mean to me? So I would want to start by thinking through what, in my view, it isn't. So in my mind, it's not simply about acknowledging history, though this is important and can be a useful starting point. It's also not, as Tuck and Yang remind us, a metaphor for other goals, notably anti-racism or a way of framing associated concerns in the context of higher education. And here a particular focus tends to be like attainment gaps. They're all valuable and important things. It's not that I'm suggesting we shouldn't focus on attainment gaps, but that's not decolonization. For me, decolonization is about rupture. It's about systemic change, about understanding coloniality as more than just a historical artifact. It is about seeing colonial ways of knowing and being as very much entangled with our present. And here, I think it's really important also to highlight that this isn't about the present or the, or the present circumstances of what we might think of as raced bodies. For me, this is about coloniality as relevant to everybody, thinking about whiteness as an element of race and, 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 and race, racism, and then how we understand how those different, how different racializations affect all of us, not just brown and black bodies. And here then we can think about how European empires operating within geographically diverse spaces, but nonetheless drawing on common forms of extractive capitalism, premised, as I've noted, on racial hierarchies and gender divisions of labor, continue to shape what are increasingly continuous and overlapping crises of climate, health and inequality. So it's very much about thinking through the ways in which coloniality is entangled with all of our lives. So when we can see it a shared endeavor, and that's, of course, no less true when we think about pedagogy and, and higher education, which is one of the things I know we're going to move on to, shared endeavor will help us to understand what collectively we then do in response to the challenge of decoloniality. That's great. Thanks for those kind of comprehensive start points. So we're going to move on to do exactly that which Lata mentioned, which is to think about what that means in your approaches to teaching. So how does that approach to decoloniality shape your approach to teaching? Shane, you want to start? Sure. Thank you so much, Lata, for these very important points, especially about the question of identifying the inequalities and to generate spaces of caring and sharing and how is that practically possible. And I think it's a very important point to move into our next set of conversations on the question of pedagogy. Personally speaking, for me, understanding decoloniality within the premise of pedagogy emerges from very personal set of experiences, especially from the country where I come from, that is India, though I'm currently based in South Africa, I'm from India. And we know that like many other countries across the global north and the global south, it has its own history of European colonization. And especially a major part of it is British colonization. So the contemporary education system that we widely see across the higher educational institutions in the country, even at the school level as well, but I'm specifically pointing at the higher educational institutions in the country, is still very much driven by the very Eurocentric or to be very specific British-centric curricular and pedagogical structures. And uh, let me cite very few practical examples. For instance, if you are a student of English literature, and if you are not well-versed in the works of Shakespeare or Keats and Shelley or any other classical British or classical English playwrights and poets and novelists, then you are regarded as not qualified enough to study English literature. And still, Obviously, across, if you look at the syllabus structures, the boxes have been already ticked that, okay, we have English literature in translation, we have Indian literature, we have women's literature, we have tribal literature. The boxes have been ticked for sure. 
But when it comes to the question of application, you see there is a huge gap in terms of how the British English literary space is perceived within the Indian higher educational scenario and how the local literary space is perceived in the higher educational scenario. So these are some of the many experiences that actually triggered my approach towards decolonizing the pedagogical spaces in the higher educational institutions. So the first thing, my first point of initiation is to understand where do I come from and how do I decolonize my own self? Because being brought up in an intellectual space, which is so much engaged and centered on the Eurocentric pedagogical patterns, it's always a very difficult task to, to kind of disassociate myself from this problematic space and try to locate the inequalities and the challenges that also Lata briefly mentioned some time back. And that is the first way to start that if I am decolonial enough to talk and engage with decolonial pedagogy, because if I'm not doing that, then what I end up may end up doing is something extremely dangerous. And that is using decoloniality as a metaphor and then trying to hide the colonial patterns of knowledge production within a mask known as or titled as decolonization. So that has been the first process, that is to decolonize my own self, to speak to me, to question myself, to disassociate my colonial self from the decolonial self and try to eradicate this colonial self and do away with that colonial self. So that has been my first way of initiating. And then when I... And, that has many procedures. Obviously, there are, that has innumerable procedures. The first for me is obviously, um, which actually very interestingly, I draw a lot from Lewis Gordon's notion of pedagogical imperative. That is when you walk into the classroom with this idea that you don't know everything. It's not possible for a person to know everything. I mean, if I'm somebody, let's say, from the field of sociology, it doesn't mean that I will be knowing every, each and everything around sociology, what exists in this world. If I'm somebody from English literature, it doesn't mean that I have to know each and everything around English literature across the world. So it is important that we create pedagogical spaces that are constructed on the parameters of discursivity not on something that I'm dictating and people are taking down notes, which is sadly, it is sadly what the pedagogical structure in many higher educational institutions look like, that a teacher is expected to dictate notes, the student is going to take down the notes and going to produce it in the examination papers, which is not what happens in thought in case of a proper knowledge production. So obviously there are many points, maybe we will talk more on that as we go ahead. So these are the two initiating ways where I try to apply decolonization within my habitual ways of teaching and learning. Thank you so much, Shayan. I feel like you've encapsulated the thoughts of the structures within higher education and how that has come to form understandings of decoloniality as well. So latter, I'd love to hear from you on reflection of that. Thanks, Shane. I mean, it's a podcast, but I have this big grin on my face because, <laughs> Shane, so much of what you've said, you know, in a way is probably the most important starting point because what you've highlighted is that these are deeply personal things. You know, my own personal relationship to this. So I'm, I'm sort of Canadian. I'm not sure I am Canadian, but I'm also British now. I've lived here a long time, over 20 years. But I have a link to India because my parents were born and raised there. And in fact, my parents were born during the British Raj. They were actually, you know, British colonial subjects when they were born. And my parents, who are, you know, late 70s and 80s, can still quote Shakespeare at me. You know, long passages that they had to learn. And in a way that, you know, Indian literature was not prioritized. I can't speak to the curriculum now, but an English medium curriculum when my parents were growing up would, was very much focused on Shakespeare or Keats. And those were the markers of a good education. And I think in a way, 
part of thinking through coloniality is turning the lens on ourselves. And I think part of why I'm also interested in making this a collective project is we mustn't presume that black and brown bodies know how these things work. <laughs> you know, it actually takes the time to sort of step back and go, okay, you know, I grew up with similar notions about you know, English literature being a part of the pinnacle of civilization. It never occurred to me to question that. It's part of our common sense. That isn't to say that I don't like Shakespeare or that there isn't a value in teaching and learning it or reading it or engaging with it. You know, that isn't the point. It's not a critique of that. It's about trying to also work through what's being missed because we focus on that. So it's not about erasing. It's about saying, it's about enhancing. So how can we maybe not just look at Shakespeare, but look at other artists or other thinkers, but also how does, how, what would a dialogue look like? You know, what were, what were potentially, you know, somebody like Shakespeare, Keats, what were, who were their, who were their contemporaries, you know, outside of Europe, maybe they took inspiration, but we just don't know. I'm not saying this because I have a literature background, but it's striking that in terms of how we think about, you know, whose knowledge or ideas or, or artistic expressions we value, there are people that are being missed, silences that emerge in that historical record. That's where I think thinking about decoloniality can be really enriching. So for me, in terms of teaching, so how do I, because I'm not an English literature person, I'm, as Louise pointed out, I'm, I'm, I have the privilege of being Madeline Louise's colleague in Polis. So it, you know, the starting point is to think about this in terms of politics, in terms of international studies, in terms of international development, which is what we are teaching in our school. So I would always start in terms of teaching, I would always start from the understanding that we are not likely to be able to achieve a decolonized university. I never actually start with any sense that this is ever even possible. And I don't mean that in a defeatist sense. But in its own way, I think it's a contradiction in terms, insofar as maintaining hierarchies of knowledge is very much why universities were established in the first place and were integral to the colonial enterprise. And it, it links really well back to, Shayun, the point you made so eloquently about the ways in which the university is constructed. British higher education was very much the model, and that's the one that's been proliferated through so much of the world. So in terms of what I do with that for teaching, I think the danger is to be defeatist. Oh, well, we're in a colonial institution, so why bother trying? Instead, I try to share with students what I think all good academic endeavors should be about, which is widening horizons. So as I said, I don't think it's about erasure. It's about putting the things that we take maybe as received wisdom into dialogue with both the historical context and then what that might mean in our contemporary one. So engaging with coloniality is for me about widening the scope of what we know, but also how we presume to know it. So whose ideas are privileged and who's silenced in the artificial divides we've established as our disciplinary boundaries? How and why might we seek to dissolve those boundaries? And then to ask students to think about, okay, so now that, I've, now that, we've, now that we've started to think about and engage with the world through maybe different lenses and perspectives, how might that change how we know the world. So for me, that is always the starting point with teaching. It always leads to more questions and answers, which I think if you're a student can be very frustrating. But then I'm a social scientist. I tend not to be apologetic about that. <laughs> Thank you both so much for such generous answers and, and for highlighting the importance of positionality and for bringing your personal experience into that as well. I think that that really is important to hear when thinking about decoloniality and pedagogy. And I think you've both touched upon this, but I would be interested to think a little bit more about what the biggest challenges you see in decolonial approaches to pedagogy within the academy and the systems which have come to shape it. So maybe, yeah, we'll ta start with Shayun again. That'd be great. Yes, I think Lata has already very pertinently mentioned and touched upon this aspect towards the end of her reflections for the previous question which I think is very crucial also for me to engage with this aspect of how I find it challenging to try to differentiate between the individual and the institutional. Now, what do I mean by individual and the institutional? So obviously, okay, fine, I want to introduce decolonial pedagogical practices within a classroom, within an institution. But what you see really challenging is when your very own institutions start 
resisting against your decolonial pedagogical endeavors. And the resistance is actually very structural and systemic in nature. It's not just it just comes or happens overnight. It's very structurally outlaid in the name of progress, in the name of modernity, in the name of smartness and various other such sorts of reasonings are used in order to tell that why you can't use a decolonial pedagogical pattern. Now, for instance, let me give another very practical example. If one really looks into the emerging higher educational or the transformations, the emerging transformations that are going in the higher educational structure in India, especially with the private universities that we have in India, it's actually very interesting. You know, if you look just at their websites, you know, especially of the universities that have come up over the last two to three years, you know, they will advertise like we use the best of the industrial practices. We use the we try to imbibe the best of the Ivy League institutional practices. And in such a sort of space, when you talk about decoloniality or you try to talk about decolonial pedagogies, they totally will brush you aside as something which is rubbish, which is trash, which is because now why it is rubbish, why it is a trash, because it consistently question their half-baked, capitalistic patterns of knowledge production where you convert each and every learners and obviously the tutors who teach the students into industrial objects, into market objects, into objects of profit making. You just see to what extent a particular course, to what extent a particular form of pedagogy is going to bring in loads of money for your university to profit and run and flourish. If that is working, it's great. If it is not working, it's not working, it's bad. So, you know, this is one of the many examples, you know, I personally have encountered when I used to teach in India, prior to joining here as a postdoc fellow, is which used to frustrate me that you clearly see that the pedagogical pattern that is outlaid in the classroom is violent, is problematic. But at the end of the day, it is fetching jobs. At the end of the day, it is bringing in profit for the university and the story is over. No one wants to talk about decoloniality there. So my starting point, obviously there are many reasons, but my starting point is the one of the major challenge that I face is this consistent conflict between the individual and the institutional. And still, obviously, with the with experiences in contexts, I try to navigate them as much as possible, obviously, in a very systematic and structured manner through introducing alternative courses to trying to project, you know, alternative pedagogical, student-centric pedagogical patterns where students can indulge themselves more rather than treating, rather than not treating their teachers at the center of the classroom. Like through these baby steps, I try to, uh, you know, uh, navigate through these challenges. Thank you so much. Latte, it would be great to hear your reflections on that too. Thank you, Shayan. There's so much you've said there. And certainly in the context of thinking about the relationship between universities and markets, and I don't think I don't think we have time to do justice to all of it, but I do think it's incredibly valuable that you've raised that relationship, because I would say for me, the biggest challenge is the lack of time. And it's very much linked to the marketization of higher education. We have so little time. And what I'm not alone in calling the neoliberal university is intent on squeezing as much out of that time as possible. And I think, you know, where we might identify decolonizing or thinking about coloniality and the effect on pedagogy, right? You talked about, I guess, what you might call conventional pedagogy is, you know, violent or the violence that might exist in the classroom when we're sort of quite committed to one way of learning that might not suit all learners, for instance, but that's that's what we're incentivized to do because that's gets that gets a particular result or meets a particular demand. And there's no room for reflection. But even within that, obviously part of why that is is because notions of productivity are dominant. And it it kind of removes the element of teaching and learning as acts of caring. Right. So for me, you know, the whole that encounter in the classroom 
which in a way I'd like to think of teaching and learning as much more circular. But there's no time to reflect, no time to think, no time to engage. And the ways in which we might care, not just for each other in the classroom, but how care can be part of pedagogy itself, right? And, and it, in a way, it is inevitably anyway, right? So much of how we engage in the classroom is because we care, because we check in, because we are interested in how students are doing and do they get what we're saying to them. And But in a way, there's still that linear sort of assumption that they're there to learn and I'm just there to work out whether they've understood what I've said. But for me, classrooms are not just sites of teaching and learning, like as in you've got a teacher and then students who are learning. But that's also, it's, it's more circular because it's also a site of learning for teachers. And we need to be able to think about, you know, a more dialogic approach in the classroom, which would, in my mind, be at least part of, right, not the entirety of, but part of what would inform a decolonial pedagogy. You know, what does more listening in the classroom look like? But there's no time for that. There's no time to follow up. There's no time. There's no time to plan differently, right? We're sort of quite, we're quite a fix. Like, okay, this is how much time you get to plan and then you'll deliver and then you come away. And there's not a lot of continuity in that encounter. And then, of course, there's the pipeline of employability or, you know, student survey results. And particularly in UK higher education, lots of emphasis on, you know, students as consumers. I mean, we've literally had a universities minister in the country talk about students as being protected by the Consumer Protection Act and stuff like that, which I find astonishing because I don't want to think of students as consumers, right? We're part of learning spaces. We have to be thinking together about what we want from an educational encounter. And there's just no scope to have that dialogue at all and no incentive to do for all the reasons, Shayun, I think you really you laid out so well, like there's no reason that I'd want to do this. Why would I want to do it? If the model is working and I've linked to industry and I've met my targets and we've got our metrics, well, why would I bother, you know, all this namby-pamby dialogue in the classroom stuff? You know, what, who does that benefit? I can see the logic of why within the marketized university, why I wouldn't want to waste, I put waste in inverted commas, why would I want to waste time? What I might call those more Frarian dialogues of, of what Frere would call conscientization. There's no incentive. Forget about time and space. There's no incentive to have that in the neoliberal university because that's not the function of the university. The function of the university is linked to the market, these outcomes, you know, talk of you know, how much money did you earn after you graduate? Those are the sort of metrics that me universities are being measured against. So it actually is, it works against the interests of any attempt to think about coloniality or decolonization. It's actually, I think, again, Shayun, you talked about, you know, you're always in a system that's working against those interests. And I, I just couldn't agree more with that. So it's a very, it's, it's really hard work because the system is not inclined to support our engagement in that because it doesn't meet the needs of the institution. So it's an individual challenge within an institutional context that's antithetical to those, those efforts. Thank you for both of those answers. And I think it's really reminds me of what Bell Hooks talks about when she talked about the classroom remaining the most radical space in the academy. And I think that both of those those answers there were really wonderfully articulated in that way. So thank you. And and I think coming back then to to this relationship between the individual and the institution. I wonder how do you see us addressing the role of power and privilege within these educative spaces within an institution or institutions which have been shaped by coloniality? I think as Lata rightly mentioned, that it's a very hard work, but obviously it doesn't mean that we will keep shut and be silent and not do anything. For me, the beginning point is it's a self-realization. But why do we need decoloniality? I mean, obviously, I might sound very generalized when I say this, or I might sound somebody, oh, it has been spoken so many times. But yes, I'm aware of the fact that we have so many theories and philosophies and propositions for legal transformations, policy makings, etc. But still, my question remains the same, that in spite of so much of policy making and transformations, why then we are still 
discussing the same problem again and again. Which means something really has gone wrong. And for me, what has really gone wrong? I mean, obviously, many things have gone wrong. But one of the major things that has gone wrong is obviously we have made policies, we have talked about transformations and many things. But we have failed to understand how to apply in the practical contexts. And this failure to understand, to apply in the practical context, for me, stems out of the lack of self-realization. And as Lata rightly mentioned, that decoloniality is like a buzzword. You know, you can have a tattoo on decoloniality, you can have a coffee mug on decoloniality, decoloniality can be written on your t-shirts, on your tables, on your window panes, and whatever. But that doesn't mean that I have really decolonized. Because if there is a lack of self-realization, it just ends up a sort of status quo, a sort of buzzword, a sort of, for many, opportunistic individuals, a sort of a tool to get opportunities in certain research and institutional spaces and to fulfill one's self-profiting desires. So if there is a lack of self-realization, for instance, again, if I give an example from India, we still feel redundant, we still feel hesitant to talk about decoloniality. Very unfortunately, a lot of people in India still believe that the post-colonial and decolonial are synonymous to each other. They still fail to understand the differences. They still use it as a sort of synonym. They still think that post-colonial literature is all about those horse heads from the 90s, as if literature, as if scholarship has not progressed beyond that. Now, when I look at these failures to, of realization, I think we need to start from the very basic level. That is, how do we understand? How do we realize that? Why do we need to decolonize? Even prior to asking how to decolonize, let us ask the question, why to decolonize? We need to find proper answers, proper responses, and not somebody telling us what to do, but we are realizing by ourselves what we need to do. And this is something which I feel is widely lacking in the schools, in the higher education institutions in India. And obviously, it is an individual question, but at the same time, it is also a collective question. Maybe Lata's experiences, Madeline's experiences, Louise's experiences are all different from each other. But somewhere, somewhat, we need to ask this question, but it remains a fundamental question for all of us. We need to ask this question, then we need to sit on the same table and try to understand what are the differences, what are the overlaps, and how can we generate a planetary resistance against this challenge, which is obviously a far-fetched thought, but we need to think about that. But my starting point is to navigate through this challenge is the process of self-realization. Thank you so much. It speaks very much to this idea of fragility as well. And it'd be really, really great to hear from you, Lata. Yeah, I mean, power, power and privilege. Again, it's interesting because higher education exists to cement power and privilege. So I wonder if we were to bring a decolonial lens on the question you've asked, where would that lead us? So it might lead us to ask, what constitutes an educational space? And I think here is where there's real scope for subversion, right? Because there is a tendency to think about education as something that happens in a fixed space classroom within certain hours in a building delivered by certain types of experts, right? So our colleague, Professor Caroline Dyer, is very clear about this in her work, thinking about nomadic lifestyles. And as one example of how, you know, the educational needs of many groups, and in her work, that's been about, you know, nomadic groups, just doesn't map at all onto that fixed space notion of education that's then encapsulated in things like the education for all goals. So in a way, you know, part of decolonizing power in educational spaces would be to broaden access to educational spaces. I would love for us to live in a world where absolutely everybody went to university and university was free, you know, freely accessible, seen as part of the essential education in the way that K through 12 is. And that we all collectively think that investments 
in education for a longer period of time actually served our collective interests that actually that's going to make the world a better place and i believe that not just because i'm you know an educator in a higher education institution but because i do genuinely think that that is probably the most effective way to dilute what is the inbuilt elitism of higher education which is a part of why people pursue it now that would change the very nature of then what these institutions did, why they existed, and very much, again, antithetical, Shayun, to the things that you were laying out as to why some of those, some of the private universities that you were talking about would be interested in investing in building higher education institutions in the first place. But we need to be able to see at least accessibility, not as the only thing, but as part of. So within the structures that we've got, what does that look like? So we're not going to dissolve the university. We're also not going to be able to make them tuition free. I mean, the UK went from a tuition free place to being tuition full. That's unfortunate, but reversing that is going to take time. It's going to take a political will that just doesn't exist within the political class at the moment. Lots of European countries have free higher education, but quite a lot of the world doesn't. Even where there are universities, they have tuition. That's very much a part and parcel of how they operate. So then I would think part of you know addressing power is in widening who's accessing higher education institutions in wider communities. How are how are universities, you know, part of communities? How are they interacting with schools? You know, what, how do universities support educational pipelines? I mean, there are conversations that we can have. But again, I think going back to Shayun, your point about that marketization, there's some incentive to do that, but they're not strong enough, given that the core function of higher education is very much to protect those elite interests and those spaces as elite spaces, right? So we are incentivized to be experts. We are incentivized to behave that way because that's how we get recognition. That's how we then get promotion. That's how we are no longer precarious, right? Permanent contracts come from saying that I am the holder of all knowledge in this area, in this little area that I did my PhD in. And I hate that, right? You'll get described somewhere. Oh yeah, you're the expert in something, something. I just, yeah, because actually what value does that have to the conversation? That already then creates, it actually builds the hierarchy into the conversation. No dialogue is possible after that because then it's just me going blah, 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 blah. And everybody else has to listen because everybody's been told I'm the expert. And so this is a very much, it's so, it's so much a part of the institutional logic. Again, it's not to sound like doomsday about that. I do think we have the power, but it isn't an individual one. It does have to be a collective one. That's why these conversations around decoloniality are so valuable, because you're not going to do this alone, and I'm not going to do this alone. But what we can collectively say is that we would like to have this conversation differently. So I'd like to broaden where and how I think educational spaces happen, and with whom. And then we can demand collectively those resources from our institutions and say, okay, this is where I think the, the direction of travel is. If we're really serious about decoloniality, and lots of institutions have said they are, then we're able collectively to push back and say, okay, if you're really serious about this, then this is what it means. How do we bring people into the space so that we make that demand even louder? And I think that is the challenge. I think there are lots of fellow travelers, including, you know, I, I'm lucky to work in a university, in a school where I have colleagues like Louise and Madeline. But we have to widen that. We've got to say, okay, well, who else needs to be brought into that space so that we can make that demand even louder? Thank you. I wondered, I do have another question prepared, but I wondered if Shane, you wanted to come back into this idea of broadening what we take educational spaces to be. No, absolutely. I think I think Lata has very strongly put forth this idea about the question about, we often talk about the question of inclusivity, which is actually, again, a very not always, but many a times it is presented in a very romanticized manner where we are talk about inclusivity, but also we see a lot of hierarchies. And I think Lata has rightly mentioned that obviously we need to expand our networks of decolonial performance and which I always talk about, I emphasis on the question about performing decoloniality. That is how we do that. Obviously, we need theories, we need policies, but at the same time, let us also simultaneously explore the possibility of how to apply those theories and philosophies in our respective spaces. 
and what are the challenges and what are the possibilities that are emerging out of those theories and philosophies. So, and, and also uh, what Lata mentioned is also very crucial that when we are engaging with the whole question of decolonizing the institution or we are establishing a decolonial institution of decolonial research, we have those institutions across the world. But many a times we also see that those are just existing decoloniality just in the name. But in terms of function, in terms of work, if you just look at their conferences, the workshops, the kind of problematic diverse practices that bring into in terms of inviting scholars and practitioners into those spaces are very clearly hierarchical in nature. So the question is that lies, I believe, in front of all of us, that how do we put our decolonial thinking, decolonial propositions, decolonial philosophies into practice in our daily life? I think that that's a really important, I think, thank you. I, I've just been so there's so much that you've said that's just like that I want to speak to but at the same time it's all nuggets of pure gold that it's just so wonderful to hear and to listen and to learn and continue to learn and I think that a lot of what you've said is for me has brought up the fact that the academy is so shaped by fragility and fundamentally white fragility that these conversations are are halted or stopped because one can't reflect on their own positionality and they're fearful of that because if they question where they have come into that position or why their voice is being heard, then they have to question their whole being within that institution itself. And that's what decoloniality does and so powerfully put Lato with that disruption, right? The disruption actually and, and having to reflect on yourself means that you have to question where you've got to. And, and white fragility will, will talk back and say, yeah, but I've worked really hard and I've been on these precarious contracts and I worked seven years in this education system to get here. And that's, that's true. That's really true. And we kind of hold that. At the same time, that's been done. And I speak for myself in this. That's been done with a lot of privilege along the side of that and with an institution which works for my privilege, not against it, works for my positionality, not against it. And and so much of what you've spoken to, the link, I think, personally for me that I see between the individual and the institution is that fragility. Because if we if we question the individual, then we have to question the system. And that would be disruptive. And quite famously, we don't want disruption. We want status quo and everything to continue as normal so that we can get the funding and so that we can get that impact and output, right? Which speaks very much to what Cheyenne was talking about within the neoliberalized institution as well. So there is a lot in that you've said that I can speak to, but I think what Louise and I were really interested in when we were looking at both of your works was that there is so much in your work about language and the power in language and the power in conversation and silence. And I wondered how you saw that with your relationship with students. How do you utilize language and conversation and silence when you are working with your students on global challenges? I'll start with Shaya. I think uh, in terms of, and thank you, Madeline, for mentioning these points about this whole necessity of unsettling our comfort zones where we are based in, which is, again, an extremely challenging task, not to mention, but we need to do it. We have no other options. We are sorry. We need to. We are sorry. We are not sorry. We have to do it. And now coming to this question about how do we, what are some of the possibilities and one of them is obviously which Lata has spoken quite well about is to generate spaces of caring and sharing. And that is where we want to make sure that, you know, when we are inside a classroom or outside the classroom, we are engaging with students or researchers at any level. We need to make sure that that voices come out very prominently and that also everybody's voice, not just selective voice. Obviously, 
a lot of challenges we may encounter in the process. There could be linguistic challenges, cultural challenges, political challenges, geographical challenges, racial challenges, and many other challenges. There could be gender, sexual, and various other challenges. But we need to figure out ways where we can have our knowledges produced more and more centered on the students. Number two thing, which I would like to talk about, and also I have reflected quite a bit on that on my recently published article on the pedagogy of performative silence. I personally believe that silence is very performative in nature. And that again emerges from a very personal experience because it's a bit unsettling, but I still, I think I need to share that in the context of the conversation that we are having. Because when I was around five years old, I was diagnosed with epilepsy. And now this neurological disorder had a lot of impact on me. And one of them was obviously I started developing speech disorders. I started getting issues of stammering. And as a result, when I used to try to talk in the classroom, in, in front of my friends, in front of the teachers, a lot of time I would be an object of ridicule. So for me, on the one side, I wanted to talk. But on the other side, you know, one side of me say that I should be silent because silent would be the best part of me to avoid this being ridiculed. And that is from where it emerged this whole idea of performative silence because that, that is from where I started realizing that silence also can be so communicative, so powerful. And especially I realized this and also I talked about it in my article that especially at the time of, you know, at the lunch breaks in the school, you know, we will have friends from different families and cultural and religious backgrounds and our teacher always would tell us that don't talk when you are eating it's not a healthy habit and we would you know at that point of time we we would in silence share so many different types of foods with each other and that process of sharing was not just about not just about the pleasure of our palates. Obviously, we love the foods of each other, but also it's about learning about each other's cultures, about traditions, about lifestyles, about the way they like to eat, why they would like to eat that. So, you know, it was also a very strong, critical learning process. This process of sharing lunch boxes with each other was also a very strong, critical learning process that was centered on the whole process of performing silence. We were not saying to each other anything. We were, we, we were just tasting each other's food items. And that is how we learned so much about each other. And there were several other... So silence, I believe, is a very strong form of decolonial pedagogy that can be introduced. And that needs to be introduced because, very unfortunately, our colonizers have taught us that if we need to say something, we always need to shout at the top of a voice. That is why you open the news channels whenever you are triggered with something unsettling, people start shouting at the top of the voice because they want to silence what is being spoken right. You look at the politicians, you look at the educational institutions, thumping and banging desks at the time of those high-profile meetings is not an uncommon thing across the world. So I think performative silence is a very strong decolonial pedagogy that I have experimented with while teaching in the classroom spaces in Bhutan. I have tried to experiment in India. Obviously, I faced a lot of challenges. At the same time, acknowledgements. But even one acknowledgement made me believe that there is some sort of possibility of doing it. So maybe these could be some of the ways. Obviously, there are other points, but I would leave the rest to Lata to maybe just wrap up. I just want to say very quickly, I know Louise uses that technique of silence also in her classroom. Louise, I don't know if you want to quickly reflect. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that, but I found that article really great because I have tried to have moments of like reflective silence with students in classrooms. And it also speaks to your idea of like being uncomfortable because they don't like it. <laughs> would be a really short way of putting it, right? They find it really difficult. They've been taught that they prove themselves to me, the expert, right, through telling me that all the stuff that they read. And so when I say, let's all sit quietly for 10 minutes and reflect on the knowledges that we brought to this, you can see them thinking, I think this might be the moment that Louise has really lost it. But then actually often, and not with every student, right, there's something really productive in that. And then when we share and then reflect on it afterwards, they say like, I've never, I teach international relations. Oh, I've never really considered that my experience as someone who's lived internationally in whatever sense they take that term impacts what, 
I think about this. And sometimes you get to see that those reflections and that silence was doing something, probably through the fact that it was a bit uncomfortable. So yeah, I really enjoyed reading about that and thinking about it a bit harder. And that idea that you, the language that you use to perform to silence, I think is a really valuable way of, of thinking those ideas through. Thank you, Louise. Lata, did you want to... For me, this is, again, such a good example of learning because I'm listening and I'm learning from all of you because I hadn't really thought about silence at all. And so that's been really, really interesting and helpful, but also to learn about your pedagogical practice in that. So it's just, again, a very good example of why you creating the space is so valuable because it's not just about, you know, we're making a podcast and hoping others will listen, but we're obviously listening to each other and we just don't get time. We just don't get time to do this. Like, I I don't know how else I would have learned, Louise, that you do that or the impact that Shayun, your work has had. I think I would, I would sort of come at this in terms of thinking about the things that I've been interested in in my own research, which is in a way coming at this from the opposite end, which is silence in a way sounds to me like the product, productive is not the right word, the, the pedagogical answer, if you like, and it's responding to what I think is a sort of inbuilt problem with being in broadcast mode. So one of the things that has come up in the critiques that I'm working with on colleagues on like gender and climate change dialogues is this is the lack of what colleagues we've called the the information ecosystem and the need for listening infrastructures. So in other words, very sort of fancy social science way of trying to say that actually we do a lot of talking. Lots of people are doing lots and lots of talking very much along the lines of what you're all saying. I'm the expert and I've got like, you know, the best weather forecast or, you know, the best agricultural intervention or whatever it is that I'm peddling. And that's how I get heard because there's social capital, political capital that I gain by making that space for myself. So it's very, it's very individual. And in our own work, we'll be very, very interested in, okay, well, how do people respond to that? And of course, you know, the people that have knowledge, so in the, in the context of climate change mitigation in this work I've been doing with colleagues in Ghana and Kenya, which has been, again, lovely because it's very good to sort of step back and be led by the knowledges and interests of, you know, other colleagues working in contexts that I'm not necessarily familiar with. So, again, the learning has been really great. But one of the things that's come out of that research is that, you know, the people that are at the sharp end of this climate crisis, for instance, are the ones that are just serially not being heard right they're not seen as knowledge actors they're not seen as experts right these are literally the people that are planting the fields the disproportionately women but they're the ones that are actually at the sharp end of having to deal with these changes rising sea levels you know drier planting seeds whatever it is that they're facing and absolutely nobody's asking them so what are you actually doing to mitigate this right the answer is always somewhere else with some expert in some capital or some ministry or some scientist who's going to you know come and pontificate to them and so i think in a way the sort of the complementary thing in my mind would also be about the listening which is okay does the silence reveal who we're not listening to or does the silence, or, or can we work out who has been silenced? So that's also in a classroom, but that's also in how we look at the literature. So, you know, whose, whose views and voices are not being heard. And frankly, I'm going to have to steal that, Louise, because I think that's wonderful. You know, what would it, what would it mean for students to just sit and think about, the, about what we've just done? But I also would add that I don't think that works unless we have a pedagogical approach that is about a conversation, that we've actually had a chat, that there is something not just to digest because I've been yapping, but actually because we've been talking together and in that dialogue, we've all learned something new. So there's a collective value in then sitting with that, not just for the students, but for the teacher as well. Like we can, I mean, I think that is more valuable if we've been having a dialogue, we've been having a conversation about our shared learning journey on whatever the topic is for that week. So it's obviously, you know, this weekly kind of learning, that's an institutional limitation, if you like. But that doesn't mean we can't work within that and say, actually, we can still do pedagogically more challenging things that at least speak to decolonial agendas, even if it's not decolonial in whatever way we might think decoloniality is, you know, rupture or, or disruption or whatever. That doesn't mean we can't do those things, which I think are decolonially inspired which is I'm trying to turn the, the, the classroom around or I'm trying to do more listening or I'm trying to do, you know, more conversation. And then what, what sorts of 
what pedagogically does that mean, not just for the students, but for the teachers as well? And how does that change our educational experience? So yeah, so I would also want to say thank you because I've learned a lot and I've enjoyed that conversation very, very much. So thank you so much to all of you. Thank you so much. It's such a nourishing conversation. And I think what was really coming out of that that last part there was the need to listen, but also the informal spaces as well for learning too, which is a really important part that we often lose when we're in the academy and when we're thinking in the classroom as well. So I guess to round up, it would be great if you could signpost people to both of your works or flag anything that you would like to flag to people. So should we start with Shayun with that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, first of all, thanks to all of you for once again creating this amazing set of conversations. I think they're very powerful and important. And also, as we, as I always believe that it is, there are so many more questions that have come up for our future conversations, and which is actually a very good sign for any healthy conversation that we just don't conclude, but we also open up spaces for future conversations. I would also like to invite the listeners that to look to try to look into my recently published monograph that is Green Academia. And obviously, it's not just a part of the shameless self-promotion, but it's an invitation, a humble invitation, because there also I talk a lot about the decolonial pedagogies and curriculums from the ecocentric perspective and through very concrete instances from India, Bhutan, Kenya, New Zealand, and various other parts of the world about how they have been in practice with respect to in collaboration with indigenous communities and how they can be applied in our present and future spaces. And and this invitation is to open up more spaces for dialogues and reflections of the same sort. So I'll, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Madeline. I mean, I, I benefit so much from being part of, you know, big scholarly communities that include all of you and fellow travelers who write and say inspiring things in this space. I, I would want to point just to one thing that I had the privilege to work on in a in a quasi-editorial capacity, which was the open access special issue of the ACTA Academica journal, where we created a sort of flat editorial structure. But the reason that's relevant is it was very much focused on thinking and doing decoloniality within higher education. And the contributors were coming from all different positionalities within academia, but really reflecting on how all of those things, how different elements of positionality interact in teaching and research spaces in academia. So the, so, you know, thinking about, you know, Madeline, you talked about white fragility, we're thinking about listening, but then linking that with some less privileged things around precarity, you know, contractual status as then limiting, you know, our capacity to innovate pedagogically, you know, the, the ways in which we, we talk about these issues in the classroom and, and some really wonderful, I would say both academic, but personal and all of the contributors, it was just such a, such a privilege to work with everyone and learn from all of their contributions. And of course, if you're listening and you want to please get involved in the cost action, which would be great. We can put those in the show notes, but also to think about engaging with the convivial thinking group. Shayun and I are a part of where we have our space and we invite lots of different types of contributions, written, oral, poetry, illustration. We're really happy. We want to think differently about how we know the world. And we want to, as using the term that you used, Madeline, that beautiful term of nurturing, these spaces. We want to continue to nurture those spaces where we're not just talking about how we do things differently, but we try to do things differently, genuinely. And obviously, Louise and Madeline, we would want to invite you first and foremost to make a contribution there, but also for you to share that as well with fellow travelers. So we'll make sure that those things are in the show notes so that you know what I'm talking about. But we genuinely would just want to invite anyone who has reflections in this space to reach out to us and work with us to continue to nurture these spaces of dialogue. That's super. I think that's a really beautiful point to end it on. And I think certainly I found this conversation really valuable. So I guess the other thing that I might recommend to people is to talk to those around you, try and make space for it, make time, though I know that that's not an easy ask always. Okay, that was great. I think 
I can speak for Madeline and I when I say we found that to be a really nourishing podcast episode, really great conversation and a great way to kick off the series. In the next episode, we will be talking to Dr. Sharon Stein and Dr. Dalila Pinto Coelho, both experts in the field around global citizenship education and what that looks like within the structures of higher education. We're really looking forward to welcoming them to the Politics and Pedagogy podcast. For those of you who want to follow up on some of the conversations or read more, we'll put lots of information in the description. So that'll include links to our profiles, links to some of the articles that we talked about, as well as some of the contact data that you might need. We also sporadically tweet at CETIS Leads and would really encourage you to get in touch with us either to carry on the conversations that started here or if you've got suggestions for things that you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for your time.